spend some time on. So we return to that now. Check, check, check. Yeah. So we return to that now. And why return to it now? Why, why did we stay away from it this long? I don't know. I think it's a matter of timing. So uh, that's the only reasonable answer I have. And so we had started in January talking about disruptive glory. Disruptive glory. And that's where we begin. So if you want a title for this teaching, it's, or this series, it's Disruptive Glory. And uh, this one is called Permission. This particular topic is called Permission. Disruptive Glory. And so Disruptive Glory has been around for thousands of years. It's, it's something God specializes in. And so uh, you see that in the beginning when he said, let there be light. It was disruptive glory. His glory broke through chaos, broke through darkness, and created something brilliant. You see it in Exodus 40, uh, verse 34 or thereabouts, where the tabernacle has been built, and the priests are ready to worship, and Moses and the priests could not even enter because God's glory came in and disrupted everything the way God... The thing with God's disruptive is that God's disruptiveness is towards life. All other disruptiveness is towards destruction. God's dis disruptiveness is towards life and towards the devastation of the enemy. And he does it with his kabod, or the weight of his splendor, the weight of his magnificence, the weight of his character, the weight of his power, the weight of his goodness, the weight of his laughter. Sometimes all he does is laugh, and it frightens the enemy. If you, can, if you can hear the laughter of God in the middle of a battle, you have already won. I pray that all of us have that experience at some point where you hear the laughter of God and you know, oh shucks. Yeah. So, then we see disruptive glory so brilliantly portrayed in, uh, I think it's Numbers 14 or thereabouts, where a pillar of fire moves from the front of the Israelites to the back. And it's the glory of God, the Shekinah cloud of God, standing between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And it's so disruptive, because to one side, it is life and light. To the other side, it is darkness, confusion, and dullness. This is the nature of his glory. And this is what he wants to bring on us and through us to the earth at this present time. There is a sun standing still. That is the glory of God. The earth and the fullness thereof displays his glory, it says. And then the same God who said, let there be light before there was a sun, now makes the sun stand still and throws the entire universe out of whack by making, uh, at least our galaxy out of whack by making the sun stand still. Disruptive glory that devastates the enemy and gives life to his people. You see, disruptive glory when Saul is out to get David. He hears that David is in Naoth, in Ramah, and he sends soldiers. And then eventually the soldiers go up, and as they're going up, they meet a group of prophets, and they start prophesying, and they're helpless. They went to arrest David. They end up prophesying. Saul went up. The same thing had happened to him before. Disruptive glory can turn your enemy into your friend. You see that in the fist-sized cloud. No rain for two and a half or three years. And then suddenly, the glory of God changes a cloud the size of a fist into the sound of rain. You see the disruptive glory of God in Nineveh, a city given to wickedness, a city that was destined for destruction. And there comes the glory of God through a reluctant prophet. Through a reluctant prophet. The glory of God, as in the splendor, the character, the magnificence, the kindness, the goodness of God. Nineveh was converted by the goodness of God. Nineveh was not converted by anything but the goodness of God. He sent a message saying, this is what could happen, but repent. And the goodness of God brought about an entire city with thousands. That's what God says to Jonah in the end. 
you are concerned about this plant shriveling up and you not having shade, well, I want to say to you, there are thousands here that I have to be kind to. When you read these stories, you realize that the disruptive glory of God is really, at the end of the day, God's magnificent power, splendor, goodness, laughter, character wrapped into one. And it just comes and breaks into a place, breaks into a city, breaks into a life, and it changes everything. You see this in Cana, where shame is undone. I love that line in that song. Shame is undone. Always try to undo your shame. Because shame will be put on you. Shame will be put on you by the world around you. Shame will be put on you by me sometimes. Shame will be put on you by the things you've done. Shame will be put on you by the accuser. When shame is put on you, undo it. Undo it. And one of the ways we undo shame is by letting the goodness, the character, the power, the laughter, and the weight, the weight of God, the weight of God settle on you. When the weight of a good God settles on you, it unwraps your shame. It unwraps your shame. It happened in Cana, where the glory of God, and and it specifically says so in John chapter 2. This was the first revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ when he changed water into wine. You see this in uh, the leper who approached Jesus. He he, He knew that if Jesus touched him, Jesus would become unclean. And so his words are, if you are willing. If you are willing, we have always thought it is, if it is the will of God. No, 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 no. That may be part of it, but the second part of it is, listen, I realize that if you touch me, you're going to go unclean. Because that was the law. Touch a leper, you're unclean. And he's saying, if you are willing, and the glory of God says, (laughs) I mean, to begin with, Jesus is the glory of God. He is the glory of God, and he is present here. He's the radiance and the brilliance of the glory of God, of the invisible God. And they ask him, are you, if you are willing, and he says, I am willing. And he who is clean touches the unclean, and instead of it being the other way around, the one who is unclean is touched. Check if my battery is okay on this. You see that with the leper. You see that at Transfiguration, where for a second, Jesus actually displays his glory. Jesus actually displays his glory. These are the things that we should expect in the year ahead, or the two years ahead, where you catch, like Jane was saying, oh God, maybe view things, maybe catch glimpses of you today, where you catch a glimpse, and these glimpses will change you forever. Where Peter, later on in Peter chapter 1, guys, I'm flip-flopping. Sorry? Yeah. Cool. My jetpack. That's a cool name. I like it. Check, 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 check. Okay. Check, 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 check. Yeah. Yeah. You see this in. I need a little more volume. Otherwise, I'll start shouting. Yeah, and so for a moment he reveals his glory and the three of them see it and you must expect these glimpses because they change you forever. In Second Peter chapter 1, Peter is talking uh, about this incident on the Mount of Transfiguration that happened and he said, we didn't believe any fables or lies. We actually saw him and we heard the voice from the majestic glory. That's the way he phrases it. He doesn't say heaven. He says from the majestic glory we heard his voice. You see this when Peter uh, participates in the glory of the creator God. How? When Jesus has come, he actually walks on water. Part of this idea of disruptive glory is you get to be part of the disruptive glory. It is not just that the disruptive glory affects you. You, you. you step into God's disruptive glory so that it can bring life to one side and it can devastate the enemy. You become part of it. These are real things that happened to real people in the New Testament who did not have the Holy Spirit like we had. None of the guys I've spoken about thus far had the Holy Spirit in them. None of them. 
don't postpone this to the future, nor should you put it into the realm of possibility for certain people. This is a realm of possibility for a people amongst whom the glory of God dwells. I'm just running through the Old Testament and the New Testament so you understand that this is very normal for God. Not walking? Oh, I'm running? Okay. Okay. All right. So, oh, you mean in my speed of speaking? Ah, I'm wondering why she was calling that running. <laughs> I was a little impressed with myself for a second. All righty. Yeah. Um, you see the display of its glory. I mean, this really not touched me, kind of made me, yeah, touch my heart. Part of the, whenever we think of the display of God's glory, we think of brilliance. And then there was this moment at, the, at 3 p.m. on the cross when the display of his glory was the darkening of the skies. Everything went dark. And the display of his glory was in that horrible cry, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That was an absolute display of his glory. It, it allows us to participate in his glory now. And then there was a display of his glory that morning when the women went to uh, wrap his body up oh, uh, and they find that the, the stone has been rolled away and that he has risen. There's a display of God's glory in that. Every promise that has been given to you by God must come to pass simply because he is faithful and you hold out in faith. Every promise comes to pass. This is a God who breaks out of any boundary that is put around you. He breaks out of it. When he breaks out of it, he takes you with you, takes you with him. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 2, another brilliant display of glory. Hey, once that thing is fixed, let me know. I'll put it on. Because this thing goes... Yes, this is true, Diana, with you, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't avoid that. I'd said I wouldn't uh, do these things in the future, but that was like an open door invitation. Thank you. Ah, another brilliant uh, scene of display of glory was in Acts chapter 2, where they all gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes and that is what we are still part of. I mean, when people, I mean, we've gotten so used to the name Acts 29 that we don't think anymore. But Acts 29 is a continuation of Acts chapter 2 to 28. It is a continuation of the display of glory and it must not stay at ankle, knee, waist. It should be drowning us. And that is what God is planning to do. The longer we are from the throne when uh, the the further we are from Acts chapter 2 the more the water and you are here for a time such as this with all your warts and pimples he was very aware of who would be here at this moment with all our difficulties with all our idiosyncrasies, character flaws, he knew. And he said, these are the people that I want to use. Because my glory is best displayed through ordinary vessels. Through Jagan, through Nick, through Jason, through Mike, through May, through me. You see that Damascus, on the road to Damascus, there's a man who is full of zeal, wanting to kill every Christian that lives. 
and he is struck down by the glory of God. You see this in Ephesus where it was a city given to magic and sorcery. And in the seven sons of Sceva, being beaten up by the demonic, the glory of God enters the city. I mean, this is a brilliant God. He uses Satan to destroy Satan. It's not possible. Jesus himself said a house that is divided cannot last. And yet he uses Satan's ploy to undo Satan's reign in a city so that the glory of God can come in. That's what he does there in Ephesus. You see this in Patmos, uh, the island of Patmos, where John is walking. And today when Mike was, Mike played exceptionally well today. Like he was actually worshipping with the trumpet. Usually uh, I hear him playing the trumpet. Today he was worshipping with the trumpet. And I could, there were times when he was playing, I was thinking of these notes and thinking, I'm running again. I was thinking that, man, this is what John heard, where there was this distinct trumpet sound and he knew and he turned around. And he saw one who was like the son of man, towering into the sky, eyes blazing fire, feet burning brass, disruptive glory. It changed the earth, what was shown then. It is the same thing that happens later on in Revelation, where, John has said, where God says to John, come up higher, let me show you more. These are the times we are entering into. I find it so easy to believe. I pray, God, that we find it easy to believe. What does this give us? This gives us permission. One of the things God does when he says, hey, listen, I'm going to bring my glory to pass for you. One of the things that happens is he gives us permission. He gives us permission. Permission to do what? The first thing that happens is, is, he, is he'll give us permission to see what he's doing. And one of the ways God allows us to see what he's doing is through teaching what he's going to do. Let me say that again. If I was Steve Jobs and still alive, and I was bringing out iPhone 16 tomorrow, skipping three generations because my... I invented something so far ahead of time, it's iPhone 16. And so how would I now show you what the iPhone 16 is? It's so far ahead of your time that I'd have to call you here and I'd have to teach you what the iPhone 16 does so that I can show you what awaits you and that we've skipped three generations of phones to get here. It's the same thing. What I'm teaching now is not actually a teaching, it is... It is showing you what you have permission for. And when I say you, I actually mean us and anybody else who at present is listening or will listen. But Jacob, isn't this what God is doing around the world? Perhaps he is, but what I know is he's doing it with us. And that this, like I had said in January, would start with us and spread. Spread how far? From Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. This is what is going to be hard for us to believe. That with us, there is a movement that will spread across the globe. That may be hard to believe. But the Holy Spirit will have to do that because we can't convince each other. Permission. Permission to do what? To see. First, what you do is you, you, whenever God says, okay, I want to turn up with my glory and um, be disruptive, bringing life and devastating the enemy. The first thing we need to do is see. After that, the next step is usually to name what we are seeing, to put it into words. After that, you agree with what God is showing. After that, you build an altar or a symbol that symbolizes uh, what God is doing. These are the ways people would respond to the glory of God throughout the Bible. These were the processes. You would see, then you would name, then you would agree, then you would build an altar. After that, you would identify with it. You would, if necessary, change your name or you would let people know that this is what is happening. By identifying with it, what would happen is you would begin to speak about it or declare it because now it was no longer a secret. 
After that, you would become expectant. You would expect things to happen. You, real, you would also realize that there is resistance to what you're doing, but you would become resistant to resistance. Resistant to resistance. After that, you would step out into action. You would take the risk of stepping out into action because you actually believe that what God is saying, you so firmly believe now, you expect it to happen. Once you step out into action, you enter into the main frame of things where God says, all right, now that you've taken actual action, let me help you figure out what it is to enter the main frame of things, as in the real thing. Once you enter that, God says, let's begin exploring. What are you exploring? You're not exploring a thing. You're not exploring a project. You're not exploring a conference or a meeting or a movement. You're exploring the heart and mind of God. In the heart and mind of God lie his character, his power, whatever he wants to do. You begin to explore God. Whenever the focus shifts from exploring God to exploring the event, eventually the event gets distorted. You begin to explore. Once you begin to explore, then God says, let me take you right back into Genesis 1.28, where you begin to subdue the enemy. You begin to multiply what God is doing. You replenish the earth with what God wants to do. Once that's done, you birth a generation that began, can, can take what you, God is doing and spread it around. You complete your given assignment and then you repeat the whole process by waiting for the next move of God. Any questions on this? You complete whatever the assignment is that God has given you and then it goes into repeat as in, all right, Father, so this is done, what's next? This is such a pattern throughout the Bible, continuously, again and again and again and again. Any questions? We could have done this six months ago, but when timing is wrong, things are not, things don't mature correctly. So I don't know why it's time to start on this again. We even paused praying after 23 days or something. But now it's time to restart. Any questions? Yeah. Today's, yeah. So building an altar may look like a symbol that a church erects, uh, saying this is the phase that God has brought us into. It's like putting a ring on your spouse's finger. It's like um, um, buying a picture that you know represents what God is doing. It is some kind of outward um, projection of what God has told you. And if anyone asks you, you can tell your children and your children's children, this is what God did. It is like taking 12 stones out of the Jordan and putting them up. It's that, that's what it means. And when you do that, God reveals something about himself that you can then tell generations. Yeah. No, but this is kind of the chronology of things, but it's not written in stone. So this kind of dis. Go ahead. I have a question about um, is, is this is this provision for us and others, or is this for others? Uh, uh, sorry, uh, the permission is for us from God for the sake of others. Yeah. Everything God does through His people is for the sake of others, but His people benefit in the bargain. So disruptive glory consumes um, and lays waste satanic landscapes. Disrupt, disruptive glory consumes and lays waste. Like it, like, it's, like a, it's like what you see in the aftermath of an atomic explosion. It's like that. The land is laid waste when the glory of God hits a place. I mean, when you read Exodus 14, 19 to 28, where the pillar of fire moves in, I mean, here was the, one of the most powerful armies in the world. 
the greatest empire in the world, the Egyptian empire at that time, chasing a ragtag bunch of slaves who had been slaves for 400 years. Chariots, horses. And they come and the pillar of the Shekinah, I, I like, I mean, the reason I want to call it that is when we say pillar of fire, we think, okay, so pillar of fire. This is a glory of God in a cloud that begins to move. And oh my God, you should have probably been there to see the tremor that goes over the old and the excitement that goes over the young. Because that thing is beginning to move and it's moving from the front to the back. And they know something is going to happen, yet they can hear the sound of the wheels and they know what these armies can do. And as it begins to move, a strange thing happens. It becomes bright light to Israel. And in that light is a strange kind of strength, comfort, courage. The very character of God is being conveyed through that light. It is as pure and zealous and passionate and strong as it can be. And suddenly on the other side, this mighty army of one of the mightiest empires that lived is now beginning to feel a dread and they don't even understand the dread. There's confusion, there's dullness, there's darkness, there's dread as they come towards this cloud and it begins to just spread and as it begins to spread, wheels begin to come off their chariots. Wheels that were oiled, wheels that were set in place begin to come off the chariot. One by one, chariots all over the place. They can also hear the sound of wind while the water is parted and they're trying to get there before the Israelites can get and then they hear the wind stop and they begin to hear the sound of water as it begins to come down. And when it was done, that landscape was strewn with chariots, Egyptian soldiers, spears, javelins, everything meant to destroy Israel, now lay destroyed. This is what the disruptive glory of God can do. And if you think that's confined to the Old Testament, I'm saying to you, that is so not true. And we need a people to display to the earth that it still happens and it happens often. Sometimes publicly, sometimes privately. But it happens and it must be known. God always needs a people to display his glory, guys. He can do it himself. But what is the point of putting a rainbow in the sky if that rainbow cannot be explained? Then that rainbow gets claimed by anybody who wants to make a symbol out of it. But what if we could have a people explain? What if a Noah could rise up and say, this is what the rainbow means? What if a Paul could rise up and say, this is that? What if a Peter can rise up and say, this is what Joel prophesied? This is why God needs a people to display his glory. Otherwise, his glory is hijacked sometimes. It's not that he needs us. He can write it on the sky. But he's a New Testament God who lives amongst the people, not an Old Testament God who is away from his people. This is what his glory can do, man. And this is what we're being invited into. Global movements, guys, demands a clarity of sight on our part. This is a global movement. It is starting with such a small group of people that it must be God. Uh, such a small group of not particularly highly talented people. And this is why I think it's gone. This is why I think it's gone. No, this is why I know it's gone. Let me not. Global movements demand, demand clear sight and uncomplicated obedience. Clear sight an uncomplicated obedience. Global movements demand clear sight and uncomplicated obedience. And one of the things we have to figure out is, he, he, he. Someone's written, don't know what is in the coffee, but can you please slow down? <laughs> Aaron, what's in the coffee, man? One of the things we have to ask is, who is God in this revival that he is bringing about with his glory? Who is God striding as in this revival? Because if you know who God is striding as in a revival, you will also know the dominant fruit that will be produced by the revival. If you know who God is striding or walking as in this revival, that he will 
send across the earth. Um, you will also know the dominant fruit of the revival because who he is in the revival is what will come out of the revival. Will it produce worship? Will it produce war? Will it produce signs in those that are revived? And we talked about this. This is summing up what we did 11 months ago. I can't believe we did this in January and we're almost in December. Next week, we'll have to start singing Christmas songs. Um, we don't have to, but we will. Yeah. I mean, Dane already started with O Come Let Us Adore Him today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, God is writing this revival as purifier. God is writing this revival as purifier. God is writing, striding, writing this revival as purifier. So out of this revival will rise a generation of teens, 20s, and 30s. Out of this revival will rise a generation of teens, 20s, and 30s. Teens, 20s, and 30s who will be God-seers because they are pure. God-seers because they are pure. Because they are pure. Have you noticed my high handwriting is better today? Okay, you didn't notice. Okay, the teens, 20s, and 30s who will, who will be God-seers because blessed are the pure for they shall see God and ancient gate openers. Both require purity, eh? And so this is not a revival that'll last a generation. It'll be a revival that'll raise a generation that will last a few generations. Just listen to those words, because they're not mine. This is a revival that will raise a generation that will last a few generations. Why? Because when God comes into a revival as a purifier, then he will raise teens, 20s, and 30s who will have such a passion for purity that they will see God easily, because blessed are the pure, for they shall see God, and they will be ancient gate openers, because in Psalm 24 it says, who shall ascend the hill? Who shall stand before a God? Those that are pure in heart. And then it goes on to say, open up the gates, let the king of glory come in. So this will be a generation that will be raised to walk in purity, and they in turn will end up being ones that can cause this to last because they'll be gate openers around the earth. And city by city, yesterday, over the last two days, I've been uh, waking up with strange Greek words uh, that I don't know the meaning of. So uh, as soon as I wake up, I Google these words. Lambda was the first one. Um, uh, in, in, in Malayalam, it would be eat some lambda, but it, that wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't that, it was lambda as in the Greek word for it. So I knew it was in Malayalam. Uh, and so, uh, da is like yo. So if I say, hey, Diana, eat some lambda, it means yo, eat some lamb. So um, that wasn't what the Lord was saying. So uh, I've been looking at these Greek words and I felt the Lord saying that, listen, uh, I want you to send someone to Athens. I want you to start something there. And I'm thinking to myself, Athens, that's crazy, Father. I have no desire to go there. So thank God, call the guy in Bahrain and say, go to Athens, and he agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elvin, if you're listening. <laughs> so this will spread. It'll go to different cities. We just have to follow up. The, 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 yeah, we'll get there. What it'll do is it'll arrest historical desolation. It'll arrest historical desolation. It will arrest historical desolation. And it will, it will um, launch. So this will be arrested where cities and nations that have seen desolation for some years now. Historical desolation will be arrested and it will launch generational restoration. It will launch generational restoration. Our role is to dive into this, display it, announce it, take the seeds we have, 
plant it in someone so they can run with it. That's our role. We are seed distributors of a certain crop that God is planting across the earth. But to distribute those seeds, we have to bear the fruit. So God is planting a new tree across the earth. This tree hasn't been planted on the earth yet. So he's chosen this ground, and I'll explain why he's chosen this ground, to plant this tree. But this ground has to bear the fruit of this tree, because if you don't bear the fruit of it, you don't have seeds. God, God gave seed only once, and that was in the beginning. After that, it's been produced fruit that will produce seed. So once we bear this fruit, we have the seed. Once we have the seed, we're supposed to let people know, hey, there's a new fruit in town, there's a new tree in town, come, come, take seed. Ho, oh, you who are thirsty and you who want to plant, come and take without payment. And then we give them the seed. They take the seed and they plant it in different corners of the earth. This is very easy for God. So every revival, whenever it starts with a certain group of people, is an invitation to us, the church, and to the world, I love this, to know the greatness and the nearness of a holy God. Is there anything else you want to live for? Every revival is an invitation to the people through whom the revival starts and to whom the revival spreads. Every revival is an invitation to enter into the greatness and the nearness of a holy God. Then we can die happily ever after. I mean, die and live happily ever after. Yeah. Any questions before I tell you why us? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, it's the teens, 20s and 30s that will be affected in a big way, but uh, there's no age, gender limit on this, but the teens, 20s and 30s, and why the teens, 20s and 30s? So that as they grow, they now have what it takes to deposit it in the ones coming after. So even with us, uh, we'll be starting a um, uh, separate, almost not a house church, but kind of a thing for teens um, in about 20 or 30 days. Because we have to align things with what God is doing, right? Yeah. Plus, I, I always think I'm 19. And I always feel like I'm 19, not think. Yeah. A question that's a question that we haven't not posed you. But if we need to help plant plant a tree that will be revived seed for others so that they can bear seed, how do we get back into garden if we we don't have the seed? If we don't have the uh I mean this 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 answer will almost sound sacrilegious, but it is the right answer. Immaculate conception. Yeah. <laughs> Let me repeat the question. <laughs> so Diana's question was, if you are to provide seed to others uh, and you have to bear fruit and you don't have the seed but you have to bear fruit, how could that be? And that's a very merry Diana question. And the answer to that is immaculate conception, as in the Holy Spirit will have to do that to produce seed. Which is why we have to be so thoroughly, wonderfully dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit and what he conceives in us. Yeah? Because every new move has to have the Holy Spirit conceive things. 
So why us? Why us? God's answer to why us, because this was a question I asked him, why us? And I, I, I've talked about this before. I'm just um, not recapping, just putting light on something that we talked about. Why us? Because for the last 16 years, God says, through thick and thin, you've kept digging the wells that the Philistines shut, and you keep renaming them. Go to Genesis 26, 18. Genesis 26, 18. Genesis 26, 18. What, why choose us? Why not choose someone that have a louder voice, can do this in shorter time? Genesis 26, 18. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham had died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. One of the things God really uh, thinks uh, about us as a church is that, guys, you keep going back and digging up the wells that I had planted when I started churches 2,000 years ago. You keep going back to the blueprint. You keep going back to the book of Acts. You keep going back to the forefathers and you dig up the wells that systems have stopped, that churchianity has stopped, that modernity has stopped. You keep going back and you keep digging up those wells and you name them what I asked your forefathers to name them. And he says, because you keep coming back to the blueprint, renaming things as I named them, digging up the ancient paths of the Spirit, never saying this is who we are or this is it, but keeping on, keeping on with me. Therefore, I think you're the right people to conceive this fruit in. That's one of the reasons. The second reason is your young people are free and they have learned to run after the things of the kingdom because they trust my goodness to take care of the things of life. Your young people are free. Your young people are free and have learned to run after the things of the kingdom because they trust my goodness to take care of the things of life. Your young people are free. Anyone under 50? Your young people are free because they have learned to run after the things of the kingdom. Because they trust in my goodness to take care of the things of life. They're not running after the things of life as most under 50s do so that they can live a happily ever after life after 50. No, 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 no. They run after the kingdom because they have such an idea of my goodness that they know I'll take care of everything else. This now allows God good soil and the freedom to conceive this amazing thing of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a sovereign work of God, man. I wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't claim any credit for it. I love what God is doing. I'm happy I'm part of this church. Amen. Yeah, man. What will it look like? Here are some patterns we can expect. These are just patterns we can expect. We're not holding on to them. We're not making banners out of them. What, can, what will this look like? What are some of the patterns we can expect as we begin? One, um, Habakkuk 3.2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Oh, Lord, renew them, renew them in our days, in our time, make them known. That's one of the things that will happen, where the fame of God will once again be expressed. I have heard of your fame. To awash in a spirit of prayer. 
in a very different kind of prayer, not prayer meetings as such, but a wash in a spiritual prayer. I, I, I wouldn't claim I know the length and the breadth of it. All I know is that's one of the things. A wash in a spirit of prayer. In groups of twos and threes and walks and Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7. I love that scripture. Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7. I have posted watchmen on your walls of Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give God no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. I love that where he says, hey, I don't want you to rest. I don't want you to give me rest to harass me so that what I want will come to pass. So that's a wash in the spirit of prayer. There's a second one. It'll, uh, yeah. Next one. Are these hands clean? Is this heart pure? Are these hands clean? There'll be such a, such an awe for purity and holiness. Are these hands clean? Are these are these hearts pure? Are these hands clean? Is this heart pure? Is this heart pure? That'll be another. Um, pattern that we'll see. Are these hands clean? Is this heart pure? Psalm 24. <sighs> these are the things we're being given permission to walk in. These are the things we're being given permission to walk in. When It's not even an invitation or a command. And it is both. God asks us to be holy. It's an invitation. God says, be holy. It's a command. But now God is saying, it's not even an invitation or a command. I'm giving you permission to walk in. As in, this will be easy. Holiness will be easy for you. Holiness will be easy for you. If Jeevan moves into your house, tech stuff is easy for you. If I move into your house, Fast food is easy for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> when God moves into your house with this idea of purifier, holiness becomes easy for you. Amen. He's giving you permission. He's giving me permission. And then the last one for now is this combination of fishers and men. This will be a very odd song if someone writes it. Fishes of men plus fire in your heart. Fishes of men plus fire in your heart plus sword in your mouth. Now let's see how the um, worship team comes up with a song about that. That'll be some chorus, huh? Fishes of men. Yeah. All yours, Emily. Fishes of men, fire in your heart, sword in your mouth. That's kind of the pattern we can expect. Any questions before we begin to conclude? Introduction and middle portion is over. Communion, yes, yes. Warn Larissa that the service is long. Yeah. A revival can't be produced, guys. Can't be produced. It's such a relief. A revival can't be produced. We can quench it. We can opt out of it. But we can't produce it. That's such a relief. Since God is this, since God's disruptive glory is the sole author of revival, since God's since God's disruptive glory is the sole 
author of Revival. Uh, what I'm going to say next may sound controversial, and if it's wrong, I'll correct it later, but right now I don't think it's wrong. Repentance is not a prerequisite. Repentance is not a prerequisite, but the result of revival. Because a lot of people use Second Chronicles um, when we talk about revival. Uh, if my people turn and humble themselves and repent, and then God will... I, I'm saying no, that this, God is the sole author of revival. He's looking for ground that he can... Um, conceive things in by his spirit uh, and then we can use the seed to spread it but since he is the sole author of revival repentance is not a prerequisite it is the result the awareness of a holy God undoes anybody be it Isaiah, be it you you will be undone by it so repentance is not a prerequisite it is the result of revival the awareness of his nearness and his greatness will bring whatever repentance needs to be brought about. So cultivate an awareness and an internal appetite for presence. Cultivate an awareness and an internal appetite. So what's being asked of us is very little. Hey Jacob, hey church, can you cultivate an awareness and an internal appetite for presence. Internal appetite for presence. Uh, how does that happen? Presence requires intimacy. Intimacy requires time. Missed intimacy will birth things of the flesh. Missed intimacy will birth things of the flesh. Will birth things of the flesh and irrelevancy, as in unnecessary things that we spent too much time in. So that's really the only um, thing that God is asking. Hey guys, I've already started you off on this path. I listen to you guys worshiping and I think of that, says God. But now that I've started you off on this path, be caught up in that. Uh, everything else is my doing. I just find your soil really conducive to what I want to do. I find your young people carriers of seeds. They can run further than Jacob can. Take it further, run faster. Just because they are young, they don't think too much of life because I'm taking care of their lives. Any questions? Okay, let's conclude. Any questions? Satan tries to thwart um, revivals or movements like this, Satan tries to thwart it. He tries to prevent revival. When he realizes he cannot thwart the advance, he seeks to discredit it or distort it. When he, he tries to thwart, he tries to prevent. When he cannot thwart, thwart, when he cannot thwart it, he tries to discredit it or distort it. So pray for the leaders, pray for me, so that I don't do anything that discredits what God is doing, and nor does it distort things that God is doing. Discredit or distort. That's something he uses very successfully all across the earth, and he'll try it with us too. The other thing we've got to be careful of is that when big God begins to do things, not to denounce others who are not doing or not agreeing not to denounce others who are not doing the same thing or not agreeing with what you're doing. Because sometimes um, 
passion can get so exclusive and zeal can get so misguided that you start denouncing anybody who does not agree. Third, there will be counterfeit uh, magicians, counterfeit um, signs, uh, false spirits, false experiences. So the revi revival does not exempt the church from testing the spirits. Revival does not exempt, does not exempt the church from testing the spirits. So these are three things that we have to be um, aware of. Direct attacks in the form of persecution. Um, you have to um, just be smart about. So, uh, for instance, given how politically correct one must be, there have been times when I've asked that certain things that have been live-streamed not be broadcast because you have to be wise, eh? You pick your battles when it's necessary to pay the cost, not when it's not necessary to pay the cost. So why is this important, guys? Because as I go through this, uh, part of me was feeling, ah, you're just putting down points. Just leave it, conclude right now. The reason I'm going through this is because this is typical of every revival since the beginning of time. Therefore, we need to be aware of it. There is not a revival on earth that has not... The devil is not creative. The tricks are the same. Every movement of God, where God was trying to revive something, was met with these three things. If you cannot prevent it, then you have to try and discredit it or distort it. If that doesn't work, then let pride come in, where you denounce others that don't agree with you, where you become exclusive and your zeal is misguided. Uh, you saw that with the disciples. Jesus, look at John's uh, disciples. They're baptizing people. Tell them to stop because they're not part of us. Uh, third, it doesn't uh, cause us to be exempt from testing the spirits. Case in point, Samaria, Acts chapter 8. Philip goes there. Bar Jesus gives his life to the Lord, magician. But he, even though he believed, he wanted to pay Peter and John money to buy the gifts. And Peter turns to him and says, you're bound in bitterness, iniquity and um, if you don't repent, things will not be good for you. So there's that, and then there's direct attack where there's persecution. And um, uh, persecution is something that God gives permission for, but you don't go seeking. So we've got to be wise there. Cool. Let's read Revelations 4.1 and then we'll break bread with after reading one more scripture. So here's kind of what God is saying to us. He's telling us, hey, I'm giving you permission. Go to Revelations 4.1. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. One more time. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And you can go on till Revelation 5.9 uh, five, uh, yeah, nine. And uh, the, the, I, I'm praying God will give us glimpses into what he's already uh, accomplished and therefore giving us permission to do. And it says, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne. 
and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I want us to understand something about that song that the angels sing. We are not saying, on one hand we are saying to you belongs worship and honor and power and everything. We are saying that. On the other hand, we are also saying that, oh God, we are going to go and do what you've asked us to so that thousands upon thousands across the earth will stand and say, to you, to you belongs honor and praise and worship. So it's, this is not just a song meant for the church to sing as we know that it belongs to you. It is us saying that we are going to do something that will cause others, thousands upon thousands, to recognize and to sing and say that to you belongs power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We'll break bread now. Here's what I want us to do while we break bread. Go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence. It kind of answers Jill's question, eh? What, is, what does it look like to build an altar? Strange thing is even God does stuff like this. He pulls out a book of remembrance. Okay, let me start again at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So what I want us to do is take bread, take juice, walk around talking to each other. And in your talking, you can converse about anything else, but make sure that in your conversation, you make a statement on what you think of what we have heard. And let the Lord open a book of remembrance today in heaven and write down what he hears from his people with regard to what he has revealed. I'm not even asking you to weigh this because you know me too well by now to, for me to say, guys, go think about this, weigh this. We're well past that. There's nobody new here, kind of. So, so we're not even going to weigh this. We're going to say, okay, God, we recognize what you're saying. You said this in January. We recognize what you're saying. And as we go with bread and juice around, feel free to converse about anything, about your children, about your job, but in the middle of it, make a statement about what God has revealed so that he hears it. And today there's a book of remembrance that will be open and he'll write down the words that you spoke. Because what we're doing is the early stages of permission. Seeing it, agreeing it, naming it. That's what we're doing. Yeah? Any questions on that? You can ask questions about what I just said now. So, this is God. Can you come out? Though you look like the character from Batman, but we won't go there. <laughs> so, this is God. Sheldon and Aaron and Shiloh and I just heard what God said that there's going to be a revival. Uh, Shiloh, you can go. And so, as we take the bread and juice and walk around talking about different things, we also tell each other, hey, I really think this thing is going to work, Sheldon. And then Sheldon says more than yes back. Well, I've already started to see that. Okay, so this is what we do. And meanwhile, God opens a book of remembrance and open it. <laughs> and he begins to write on it 
what Sheldon said, what I said, saying, these guys actually believe what I'm going to do. And he writes it, and he names it. Yeah? Sheldon, you can go and take care of the kids. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so that's how this works. Yeah? Thanks. Alrighty, let's do the bread and grape juice. And then I'd like to sing a worthy to receive one of those songs that has that part, that song. So feel free to rise up. We are walking around talking and declaring. We're not sitting and doing it like normal. We, guys, you can put the commu- uh, sh- uh, what's your name? Vivek, uh, Heidi.